Clean menus and mothers. This is uh, Rick's title for Leviticus 11 and 12. You could also call it Thanksgiving and Christmas because <laughs> the first chapter is going to deal with food and the second chapter is going to deal with the birth of a son. So pretty cool. Leviticus 11 and 12. I was talking with some truly dear friends on Sunday morning and they came up and we were chatting afterward and they said, you know, we were surprised, but we love Leviticus. And I thought, that's a t-shirt right there. And can someone turn the light on in the back so we can see our thank you very much. Yeah, I love Leviticus. That will get people asking questions, right? So I think we need to have some of those printed up. The first 10 chapters of this book deal with officiation. I gave you an outline, and part one of that outline for this book is officiation which deals with the sacrifices. We went through the first seven chapters roughly and then the, the priestly role and then the actual ordination of, of Aaron and his sons taking place in chapters eight, nine, and 10 with 10 being that, that tragic chapter. We see the week of ordination ending with two less priests than when it began. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abahu, who offered strange fire from their censers and were immediately consumed by fire from the presence of the Lord as they tried to appropriate some of that glory for themselves, try to get in on it, glory that was not theirs to claim and was not even theirs to share with the Lord. And do you remember what Moses said? If you look at Leviticus chapter 10, verse three, Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke, saying by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored or glorified. Father, we honor you and glorify you tonight. And we approach you as holy. Yet, Lord, we are still trying to understand what that means. What it means to approach a holy God. Father, I have been, I've been bathed in grace for so long in my life that sometimes I forget about righteousness and truth. And I can so easily forget being saved by Jesus and being purified by your blood, Lord. I can so easily forget what the distance would truly be between us if you had not made that sacrifice. So easily forget how awesome and righteous and pure and perfect and absolutely holy you are and how in my natural man, how I am so far from that. Well, Lord, I pray that as you worked in the hearts and the minds of the sons and daughters of Israel, as you over time began to teach them something of your nature and what it really meant for them to be in communion with a holy God, I pray we would learn some of these same lessons. Thankful, Lord, for grace and mercy which allows us through your long suffering and your forbearance allows us to study these things and learn these things. But Lord, may we not miss how holy you truly are. And I pray you would lead us into that tonight in Jesus' name, amen. It is, I believe, a key ingredient that is sometimes lacking in our faith. And it can also be deficient in our hope 
and in our love as well. As Paul called out in 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love, these three abide, and the greatest of these is love. But all three of them have an ingredient that is absolutely necessary for them to be, for us to function with faith, hope, and love in the way I believe we've been called to. And that key ingredient is holiness. 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 Love without holiness can quickly dissolve into lust. Hope without holiness really isn't hope because it's in a holy God that we trust. It's because he's absolute and his word is perfect that we can have hope for a future, right? So, so even hope needs that ingredients, ingredient of, of holiness, but faith, faith requires holiness. Holiness is the running theme of Leviticus all the way through. Even in this first section that we studied, the officiation, of all the sacrifices and the priestly duties, there is a call to holiness in that. And specifically, this book is leading us as it led the children of Israel into the holiness of God, into comprehension of his awesome, absolute nature. His holiness is the game changer of faith. Why? Because it's the realization of his holiness that brings the resignation of my faith. The realization of his holiness brings the resignation of my faith. That is, my faith begins to submit. I don't just believe in him, I trust him, I submit to him, I walk in obedience to him. I have a faith that is resigned to his will, resigned to his purposes, resigned to whatever he desires with my life, whatever it may be, resignation, that, that's Faith in his holiness as opposed to faith in myself, faith in what I think, faith in what works right for me. When the multitudes couldn't swallow Jesus' teaching that they needed to drink his blood and, and eat of his flesh, they just couldn't buy that. John chapter six, so many of them walked away that day. Jesus looked at the apostles and said, do you wanna leave too? And Peter replied, Lord, to whom shall we go? John chapter six, verse 68. You have the words of eternal life. And then he said this, John 6, 69. We have believed and have come to know that you are the holy one of God. Holiness causing Peter's faith to be resigned. Whatever comes, come what may, where else are we gonna go? We have to follow you. That's a resigned faith. Peter would learn that far more as he went forward in his life. But on that profound moment, we believe that you are the Holy One of God, his faith informed by the holiness of Jesus. Or when Moses, Moses himself came to learn this lesson in a very difficult way. In fact, he would learn the lesson by losing his traveling visa to the promised land. You know the story that Moses blew it and God said, you're not going in. We'll get to that story, Lord willing, in Numbers chapter 20, but in Deuteronomy chapter 32, recounting what happened, the Lord spoke to Moses that very same day, Deuteronomy 32, 48, saying, go up to this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, also called Mount Pisgah in the scriptures, which is in the land of Moab opposite Jericho, and look at the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel for a possession. And it truly is a panoramic view. I've been privileged to stand up there once in my life. 
up on Mount Pisgah and look out over the land and see something of what Moses was enabled to see, but that's all that he would see. Because the Lord says, then die on the mountain where you ascend and be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people because, listen, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zen. Remember what he did, he struck the, the rock twice. God said, God said, speak to the rock and I'll provide water for my people. Moses was angry with the people. God wasn't angry with the people. He recognized they were thirsty. He said, speak to the rock. Moses didn't speak to the rock. He called the people morons, my interpretation. And then he struck the rock twice in his anger, misrepresenting God, misrepresenting a holy God. And so the Lord says, because you broke faith with me. And then he says, because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. It is holiness that informs our faith. It's the holiness of God that brings the resignation of my faith to his will, whatever his will may be. Now, tonight in Leviticus chapters 11 and 12, we're just gonna do those two chapters, but we're gonna enter into the second part of the Levitical outline, as it were, it's purification. Officiation, chapters one through 10. Now, chapters 11 through 16, purification. And everything in these chapters are about purification and holiness. And what's beautiful is if you understand that going in, the strangeness of many of these ordinances and prescriptions throughout these few chapters kind of goes away and you begin to understand why he says what he says and why he explains what he explains. Some of the weirdest chapters truly in the entire Bible are Leviticus 11 through 16. Unless you approach it, from the perspective of God saying, I want you to be pure, be holy, because I am holy, which he'll say in chapter 11. So we're just gonna take chapters 11 and 12 tonight. Chapter 11, verses one and two, the Lord spoke again to Moses and to Aaron, saying to them, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, these are the creatures which you may eat from all the animals that are on the earth. These are the creatures you may eat. So th there's room for all God's creatures right next to the mashed potatoes, right? This is now the menu. And he's gonna present to them a clean menu. Here's what you may eat. You may recall going all the way back to the beginning with Adam and Eve, meat was not on the menu. Meat wasn't on the menu. The, the fruit of the trees and the vegetables of the plants and the water of the brook was all available to them. Meat was not on the menu until after the flood. Genesis Chapters eight and nine, when God gives the Noahic covenant and says, now you can eat of the meat. For now, animals are afraid of you, so they'll run away. It's gonna be a little harder for you to get, the, you're gonna have to hunt. But so now they could eat meat. Well, now God comes along with the Jewish people and says, but there's some meat I do not want you to eat. And this is well-timed the week before Thanksgiving. This section Leviticus 11, along with Deuteronomy 14, is the basis of the Jewish dietary law called the kashrut. Kashrut in Hebrew, which means fit. It's that which is fit for consumption. And what's remarkable about Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 is all of these laws for the diet, they maintained Jewish fitness across centuries. At times when others were dying, even of plagues and pandemics, Jewish people 
continued to seem to be healthy as they followed these dietary laws. A commentator by the last name Kellogg, which I think is ironic, said, even so long ago as the days when the bubonic plague was desolating Europe, the Jews so universally escaped infections that the popular suspicion was excited into fury and they were accused of causing the fearful mortality among their Gentile neighbors. Blame the Jews, why? Because they're healthy. How about look at their menu? (laughs) How about maybe they've got something going on that we don't understand, we could learn, and they did. Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, the cash root, the Jewish dietary laws. But don't miss this. This is so much more than dietary health. If you think that God is just presenting a healthy diet, you're gonna miss out that it's not dietary health. It is truly discerning holiness. That's what this is about. That's what he's presenting to the people. Now, as we go through the list tonight, you're gonna see some of this. Some say, man, it's got to be arbitrary. You know, that the Lord just, he has a rationale, not questioning the rationale of God, but it's an arbitrary list that God has a reason for, but it's known only to God. And you can make an argument for that. In fact, to some degree, it really is true that as you read through this, we're gonna make some applications here But the interpretation, the Bible doesn't really say why God says this. It doesn't come out and say, only eat this kind of animal. Why, Lord, doesn't say. He just says, this is what I'm telling you to do. And some think, well, maybe he just chose certain things because he's trying to separate his people, and I think that's legitimate. Any assumptions that we make, and I'm gonna make several tonight, warning you ahead of time, but any assumptions we make, any applications we make, we need to make cautiously, and respectfully for the word of God. And remember that some of what I'm gonna share even as we go through is simply, this is New Testament application of of an Old Testament ordinance. So we don't exactly know why. Some suggest these restrictions were given to stand in stark contrast to pagan practices. And that's absolutely true. Some also see, and I lean this way, and I'm gonna do a bit of this, living illustrations, that God made certain choices in what animals would be okay for dining and what animals would not, some prohibitions, but living pictures of the distinction of holiness. What distinguishes you as my people from others who don't trust and follow me? So we'll begin, first part, with land animals. Among the land animals, those which are clean and those which are unclean. If they're clean, you can eat. If they're unclean, don't eat them. Verse three, whatever divides a hoof, thus making split hoofs, and choose the cud among the animals that you may eat. Nevertheless, you are not to eat of these. So verse three right there, just note hamburger, good to go. In and out, all right. Five guys, you're fine. But verse four, nevertheless you are not to eat of these among those which chew the cud or among those which divide the hoof, the camel. So camels are right out. There goes an entire brand of cigarettes. (laughs) The camel, for though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof. Have you ever seen a camel foot? It's the weirdest thing in the world. They're, They're like furniture pads. They really are. And camels are weird. In fact, I don't know why I think this, but when I look at camels, I think British. 
I think if they were going to talk, they would talk with a British accent, with their furniture pad feet and their British teeth. I don't know. I don't know what it is about camels, but can't eat the camel. It chews the cud, but it doesn't have divided hoofs. Verse five, likewise, the chiffon or the chafon, um, this is also, some translations say the hyrax, some translations will say the coney, and what it's talking about, and they're all over northern Israel, rock badgers. They're a furry little critter that, I mean, man, these things can flatten themselves out and go right into the cracks of the rocks, and they're, they're everywhere, up in Caesarea Philippi, that's where we tend to see them when we make our Israel trips, they're everywhere, the cute little things, They'll be up in the trees, they'll be down in the rocks, but the hyrax, or the, the chafin, for though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof, it is unclean to you. The rabbit also, for though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof, it is unclean to you so much for rabbit season. And the pig, for though it divides the hoof, thus making a split hoof, it does not chew cud, it is unclean to you, bacon is right out. You shall not eat of their flesh nor touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. Arbitrary, some are clean, some are not. Here's the thing. What's really interesting to me about this list is it seems that an animal's cleanness for people to eat is based on or determined by two things, how it walked and what it ate. How it walks what it eats. Application. How do we walk? How do we walk? Do we walk clean or unclean? Do we walk with a divided hoof? That is, feet divided from the world, separated from the world? Or do we walk with a united hoof? That is, we are united to the world. Do we have the divided hoof, a picture of being set free? Or are we in lockstep with a lost world? Paul says in Ephesians 5.15, be careful how you walk not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. You know, there are a lot of people right now who are really concerned with the government taking advantage of us. Don't like the idea of the restrictions that we're being given and what we're being told by the government and the man is out to get us. And you know what? As long as you're in the word, as long as you're listening to Jesus, they can do whatever they want. Like we said earlier, you cannot be snatched out of the Father's hand. So don't worry about that. You want wisdom? Don't go to the news sources. Go to the Word of God. You want clarity and understanding as to how to walk, divided from the world, though we live in the world? Pray about it. Take it to the Father. Seek his wisdom and his will. Why, Paul says, because the days are evil, and there's no question about that. Colossians chapter two, verse six, Paul said, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. How did you receive him? By looking like the rest of the world or by doing some things that were a little different? A little out of the mainstream, a little off the beaten path. As you receive Jesus with that passion, with that commitment, with that faith in him as your savior, walk that way, having been firmly rooted, Paul says, being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. You know what, there are a lot of people right now saying with the new restrictions, how can we possibly be thankful on Thanksgiving? Christians, how can we not be thankful? How can we not walk with an attitude of gratitude and thanksgiving to a holy God who has loved us and saved us for all eternity? 
I don't care if I have to have KFC for Thanksgiving dinner. I can be thankful. When you follow a holy God, you walk differently from the common world. You also eat differently. Divided hoof is one way of walking, but also talks about chewing the cud. Do you chew the cud? Can't remember a time that I have, Pastor. Listen, to chew the cud is actually a Hebrew idiom. The phrase in the Hebrew is ma'alat garei. And this, this phrase, we might say, let me chew on it. Or, hey, that's food for thought. They say, are you chewing the cud? Hey, chew the cud. What does it mean? It means to meditate on something. Meditate. Not, not like Eastern meditation. You know, we're not talking about having some kind of mantra and, and humming an om or, you know, sitting cross-legged till your knees hurt. We're not, not that. Meditate on the word of God, which is substantive, valuable. Psalm 119.97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119.99, I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Hey, you're in the word, you're meditating on the word, you're thinking about the word of God, you're chewing the cud. Do you chew the cud? Jeremiah 15, 16, the verse that Les and I often fight over, your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart for I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts to chew on the word of God, to meditate on the word of God, to feed on the word of God. Ezekiel ate a little scroll. Ezekiel chapter three. You can read that story if you want. Interesting. And Revelation chapter 10, John is told to eat a little book. He does. It's interesting to look at Jeremiah saying, your words were found and I did eat them. Ezekiel, in the same time frame, being told to eat this scroll and he didn't. It was as sweet as honey in his mouth. And John, in Revelation 10, he eats the little book and says, oh, it is sweet as honey in my mouth, but when it got down into my stomach, it was bitter. It was bitter. It's the word of God. Sweet to the taste, it can be bitter to the stomach. Meaning what? Meaning it's a challenge. The holiness of God, the perfection of God, the sin nature of man, the things that we have to come to grips with, can bring a bit of bitterness in the stomach, also recognizing, though you may be saved, you live in a lost world, that's a bitter feeling in the stomach. I love the story in Revelation 10. What's John told to do about it? Get the word out. <laughs> Sweet to the taste. Man, if it's bitter in your stomach, get it out. Throw it up all over people, as it were. Give the word to those who need it to be saved. These are all pictures of the word of God, chewing the cud, meditating on the scriptures. By the way, it's not chewing the fat. That's a different thing. You can chew the cud or you can chew the fat. Titus chapter three, verse eight, Paul said to Titus, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law for they are unprofitable and unworthless. That's chewing the fat. Getting into those arguments with people. I've said before, we are not about winning arguments. We're here to win souls. So don't chew the fat, chew the cud of the scriptures. Ponder them and, and think them through and process them and bring them up in conversation. And you might go back over these verses 
verses three through eight, talking about these land animals and say, yeah, but wait a minute, even unclean animals chew the cud. Camels, rock badgers, bunnies, pigs, they, they chew the cud. Understand something about, about all the animals that we look at tonight. None of these animals are inherently bad. They're just unclean. We need to get our understanding about that. It's what they represent that is bad. Bunny's not a bad little critter. It's a cute little critter. It's not bad inherently. Ooh, the evil rabbit, you know, with the holy hand grenade. I mean, it's, this is not. <laughs> Bunnies are fine. You have them in the little cage, pet them, take care of them, whatever. But they're not inherently bad creatures, but they are pictures of that which is unclean. And remember, God is, while he's, Giving prescription to his people health-wise, he is also painting pictures of holiness. And these cud chewers lack the divided hoof. Think about that. So you've got someone who chews the cud. They pour over the scriptures. They read the Bible. They say, hey, I meditate on the word, but they walk in the world undivided. They're continuing in an unclean environment and in an unclean state. I, I don't know if I've told you this, I think I have maybe years ago, but I was furious one night as a youth pastor when I discovered that after Wednesday night Bible study and worship, we had this great worship time. We turned down the lights and the kids would have hands raised and they were just so into it and I loved that, that they were all gathering about 30 or 40 kids over at one kid's house every Wednesday night to watch South Park after Bible study. <laughs> Meditating on the word and chewing the cud but walking with undivided hoofs. Compromising everything that they had just learned and, and experienced in the Lord. I came somewhat unglued on them when I discovered this. Shut that party down real fast. <laughs> if you say you meditate on the word, but you walk undivided from the world, you're walking unclean. Hebrews 5.14 says solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Or James chapter one, verse 22. Yaakov says, prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. You can chew the cud, but if it doesn't divide you out from the world, if it doesn't sanctify you, if it doesn't make you wholly different, then you're still walking unclean. By the way, camels are unclean, right? Unclean creatures. Understanding that camels are unclean sharpens the point that Jesus makes when he rebukes the Pharisees. He said in Matthew 23, 24, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. See, that, that's doubly harsh. He's not just saying you swallow something huge as in hypocrisy. He's saying you swallow something unclean and every Pharisee would know that. Every Pharisee would be as offended as if he had said you swallow a pig because a camel was also unclean. Hey, camels are unclean. Yes, Jesus might say, and so is your very approach to God. Unclean. Why? Oh, they were a bunch of cud chewers claiming to know the word, but their feet were not divided from the world. They were acting just like the rulers of their day. Revelation chapter one, verse three says, blessed is he who reads. And blessed are those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed 
the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And that's the point. That's what our Bible study is for and about. It's reading, yes. It's hearing, absolutely. But it's heeding. It's chewing the cud and walking with a divided hoof, divided out from the world. That is what creates in me a clean heart. That renews a right spirit within me. But there's something else necessary to distinguish holiness, so we're gonna leave land animals, and we'll now go to water creatures, both clean and unclean, those that you can eat. Verse nine, these you may eat, whatever is in the water, all that have fins and scales, those in the water, in the seas, or in the rivers, you may eat. And several of the tribes, in fact, when they come into the promised land, several tribes are gonna be right up along the Mediterranean coast, so they're gonna be fishing off the coast. Other tribes are gonna be gathered around the Jordan River, or even up in the headwaters of the Jordan, so fish aplenty. And they're gonna be doing a lot of fishing and a lot of eating of fish, still doing Israel to this day. So you gotta know what you can eat. You can eat those with fins and scales. But whatever is in the seas, verse 10, and in the rivers that does not have fins and scales among all the teeming life of the water and among all the living creatures that are in the water, they are detestable things to you and they shall be abhorrent to you. You may not eat of their flesh and their carcasses. You shall detest whatever in the water does not have fins and scales is abhorrent to you. The Jewish kashrut prohibits this very thing, the eating of sea and water creatures that are finless and scaleless, and the list is long and includes shrimp, prawns, Oysters, clams, crab, <laughs> lobster, calamari I'm good with, octopus, no more octopi. <laughs> I don't know, stone, stonefish. I mean, they're, they're, here's the thing. The distinction, fins and scales, it's all about how they move through the water. How do they move through the water? Application time. You wanna learn to move in holiness to your thoughtful diet of the word of God, just add water, just add water. John 7, 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, but this he spoke of the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Do you know how many times we're in a Bible study like this and the Practical application comes down to the word and the spirit. Trust me, I, I, I know this. I see it over and over. I'm like, well, we, but we talked about the word and the spirit last week, Lord. Yeah, do it again. Okay. <laughs> Here it is. You're chewing the cud. You're walking divided from the world. But like the sea creatures, how do you move through the water? If you're not moving in the living water of his spirit, if instead, like some of these other creatures I listed, you're down in the muck and in the mud and in the shallows, you're not moving in the spirit. You're stuck in the soul. What a picture. And if that's you, the word, here's how you tell, by the way, the word will be dry and lifeless. How do I know if I, if I have the spirit of the Lord dwelling within me? His word comes alive. Is one of them. There are actually many ways that we could get into. But the word is fresh and refreshing and strengthening and invigorating. Without the spirit, even for someone who claims to follow 
Jesus, the word becomes lifeless and bland and dull and kind of hard to understand and find yourself reading the same passage over and over. And if that's you, simple prescription, just add water. Move in the living water. Get out of the muck. Okay, well, that sounds real picturesque, but what are you talking about, Rick? Pray for the Spirit. Ask him for his Spirit to lead you and guide you and move in you and enliven your spirit. The Spirit who inspired this word enlivens this word as well, and it becomes for us sweet as honey and as strengthening as meat and it's refreshing and thirst-quenching as a fresh mountain spring. By the way, Peter and Jude, by contrast, both describe false teachers as those who are, quote, without water. Springs without water or clouds without water, 2 Peter 2.17 and Jude verse 12. A false teacher, false teacher is a mirage. The false appearance of water, but when you get up close, there is no real evidence of the Spirit in their lives. They're bottom dwellers, mud suckers living in the shallows. <laughs> so we walk divided from the world and we chew the cud of the word, we meditate on the word, and we, we move in the living water, the flowing water of the Spirit of the living God. And part three, we come to now flying creatures, clean and unclean, those creatures that you can eat or not eat, that fly, verse 13, these moreover you shall detest among the birds. They are abhorrent, not to be eaten. The eagle and the vulture and the buzzard and the kite. You ever try to eat a kite? Man, that string gets stuck in your teeth. The falcon in its kind, every raven in its kind, and the ostrich and the owl and the seagull and the hawk in its kind. By the way, if you ever try a seagull, they taste like french fries. I'm not sure why. <laughs> and the, uh, let's see, the hawk, the little owl, verse 17, the cormorant, the great owl, verse 18, the white owl <laughs> or the snowy owl. Environmentalists would not like this verse. Actually, no, they would because you're not supposed to eat them, so let them run free. The pelican and the carrion vulture and the stork and the heron in its kinds and the hopo and the bat. The jury is out on turkey, <laughs> by the way. Depends on who you ask. There are some Jews who say, no, no, turkey's not on the list. They're kosher, they're good. And there are others who say, no, 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 we refrain from turkey as well. So, you know, you can put that in your Thanksgiving pot and cook it. But the birds that are all listed here appear to be carrion fowl. That is, these are birds of prey. Don't eat the birds of prey. Clean birds don't eat meat. What about the bats? Bats are primarily insectivores. They eat insects. So they eat the meat of bugs. Galatians 5.17 says, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. God says, when it comes to the flying creatures, don't eat the flesh-eating creatures. Stay away from those. And consider this. Genesis chapter one, verses 20 through 30. When the Lord is describing, the word is describing the creation of the world, there are animal groups that are set in each of three spheres. 
Three spheres of creation. That is the sphere of land, the sphere of sea, and the sphere of sky. And we see the same application here. It seems that the marker for clean or unclean animals seems to have to do with their motion and their ingestion in their particular sphere. How they're moving in the sphere that God created for them. And and there's a whole book out on this, and I forget the author right now. If if you're curious about it, uh, email me, and I'll I'll tell you who the author is. But there's a whole book that delves into the biblical precedent for the, the created spheres and the animals within those spheres and why God then chose certain animals in those spheres to be clean and certain to be unclean. It's fascinating, but the marker seems to be how they move and what they eat within their sphere. Think about this. The flying creatures, what is their sphere? It's the sky or or the air, right? Two powers move there. Two powers. And you're gonna choose one or the other. The first one, Ephesians chapter two, verse one, says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, united, not divided, but united to this world, to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And man, he loves for you to eat flesh. So the bird of prey in the air, there's a picture there, something that I think we can connect. The prince of the power of the air trying to feed you the flesh. There's that picture. And the flesh and the spirit are set against each other. John chapter three, verse eight, gives us the real power worth knowing Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. How do you move through the air? We've already talked about it. How do you move on the land? With divided hoofs from the world, chewing the cud of the word? How do you move through the water in the living water of the Spirit? How do you move in the air? Do you move by the wind of the Spirit? Do you move in his power or, or are you choosing rather to be in rebellion, which means you're under the authority of the prince of the power of the air, which is the devil? What power moves you? What power carries you in that sphere? It's gonna be, as I said, one or the other. And by the way, it's not one or the other because the devil and God are polar opposites. No. That's a complete misnomer. It is not biblical. It's bad theology. It is not the yin-yang, the black and white, the good, the bad, God, good, devil, bad, God on the one side, devil on the other side. No, that's not, that's not. God is perfect. And the devil is just in opposition to perfection. He's probably about as far away from perfection as you can get, about as evil as you can get, but he is not a polar opposite to God. He's opposed to God. And so he's driven by that attitude of defiance, which is why those who oppose God come under the authority of the prince of the power of the air, because he's opposed to God. Which one guides your movement? Uh, More flying creatures. Now we deal with insects, clean and unclean. Apparently there's some bugs you can eat, so check this out. It's really good for kindergartners to know. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 20. All the winged insects that walk on all fours are detestable to you. Now, I'm just gonna tell you all, God didn't even have to tell me that. (laughs) Got it. Don't eat bugs. But he said, yet these you may eat. 
among all the winged insects which walk on all fours, those which have above their feet jointed legs with which to jump on the earth. So these of them you may eat, verse 22. You may eat the locust in its kind and the devastating locust in its kinds and the cricket in its kinds and the grasshopper in its kinds, but all other winged insects which are four-footed are detestable to you, so you just, you can eat those. Locusts, grasshoppers, crickets, good to go. I'm not even sure what to do with that one, to be honest. Now, John the Baptist's high-protein paleo diet of locusts and wild honey is okay. He could eat locusts, that one's fine. How do you make application with those bugs that have jointed legs? I'm not sure that they, they, they hop. Maybe it's about praising the Lord and exaltation. I'm not sure. All I can really say at this point with this one is remember that while God is dealing with dietary health, more importantly, he is dealing with clear distinctions of holiness. And he's trying to set his people apart between that which is clean and that which he has determined as unclean. Verse 24, continuing, and now we get to a section that's more about pollution by touch. So you become impure or unclean if you touch these things. Verse 24, by these, moreover, you will be made unclean. Whoever touches their carcasses becomes unclean until evening. This will ruin your day. And whoever picks up any of their carcasses shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. Concerning all the animals which divide the hoof but do not make a split hoof or which do not chew the cud, they are unclean to you. Whoever touches them becomes unclean. And whatever walks on its paws among all the creatures that walk on all fours are unclean to you. So those of you who have dogs and let them lick your faces, something's really wrong. <laughs> unclean. Whoever touches their carcasses becomes unclean until evening, verse 28, and the one who picks up their carcasses shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. They are unclean to you. Why not just say wash up if you touch a carcass? You know, use a little hand sanitizer and move on. No, see, what happens here is if you happen to touch a carcass of any of these animals that are dead animals, the moment you touch that carcass, you are unclean all day long. Why? Because death is the ultimate unclean. Death is uncleanness. Hold that thought. Verse 29 continuing. Now, these are to you the unclean things among swarming things. So this is the fourth category now. Swarming things which swarm on the earth. And he lists several. The mole and the mouse and the great lizard in its kinds. Or the thorn-tailed lizard is the literal translation there, and the gecko, verse 30, and the crocodile, and the lizard, and the sand reptile, and the chameleon. These are to you the unclean among all the swarming things. Whoever touches them when they are dead becomes unclean until evening. So obviously don't eat these things, but even if you touch a dead carcass of one of these things, you're unclean all day long. Also, anything on which one of them may fall when they are dead becomes unclean including any wooden article or clothing or a skin or a sack, any article of which use is made, 
It shall be put in the water and be unclean until evening, and then it becomes clean. As for any earthenware vessel into which one of them may fall, whatever is in it becomes unclean, and you shall break the vessel. Any of the food which may be eaten on which water comes shall become unclean, and any liquid which may be drunk in every vessel shall become unclean. Again, if it's touched by these unclean things. So if you have a water vessel and a mouse drops into it, don't drink the water, okay? Everything, moreover, on which part of their carcass may fall becomes unclean. An oven or a stove shall be smashed. They're unclean and shall continue as unclean to you. And you can make all kinds of health issues with this and, and show how, like in the days of the bubonic plague, that, that Jewish people stayed healthy because they weren't eating things like rats and mice and ratatouille, you know, whatever it was that they were eating at that time. The, the people of Israel, they didn't, they didn't eat that stuff. And so they, they stayed clean and they stayed healthy when others were, were dying. All these things, the swarming creatures, all unclean to eat, and their carcasses unclean to touch. And if their carcasses, now granted, a crocodile is probably not gonna fall in your cereal bowl, but a mouse could. <laughs> so if a mouse falls in your cereal bowl, it's unclean. You throw the bowl out, you, know, you, gotta, you gotta break it. And he goes through and, di and discusses these things. But do you notice what happened in verse 32? Look at it again, verse 32. Anything on which one of them may fall when they are dead becomes unclean. And he goes on to describe a wooden article, clothing, skin, a sack. He describes earthenware vessels. He describes a stove or an, an oven. These are household things. We've just moved from outside to inside. We've just gone from the great outdoors to behind closed doors because there's an awful lot of unclean things that go on in the home when no one's looking, when the doors are closed and locked, when no one knows what's really happening, we can be as unclean, if not more unclean in the house than we are out in the open world. So what do I do if something becomes unclean at home? Well, wood, clothing, skins, sacks, wash them in water. Wash him in water, Ephesians 5.25, Jesus gave himself up for the church so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Wash up. You have something in your life that is becoming unclean, some issue, some problem that you're dealing with at home. Maybe it's your mouse. <laughs> Lean you to places on the internet that you don't need to be going and you become unclean. Wash up. Get washed in the water and the word. And the, wa the word itself has a cleansing effect, a washing effect. But I, I think we can make the implication that the water and the word once again means the spirit and the word. Get washed in the living water, washed in his word. Let him minister to you in that way. Earthenware vessels. What do you do with earthenware vessels if they become unclean? You gotta break them for humility's sake. Gotta break them. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure, remember, in earthenware vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Stoves? You got a stove that becomes unclean? Some kind of unclean use? Smash it. And I'll put it in the context of what we just shared on Sunday, don't offer strange fire. If your stove is burning hot for your own glory, smash it. Walk by the light 
of the altar fire, trust the life-altering sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let, let his light, his warmth, his heat, let that be your sanctification and don't look for your own glory. Don't trust in yourself. Verse 36, nevertheless, a spring or a cistern collecting water shall be clean, though the one who touches their carcass shall be unclean. So let's say an animal carcass falls into a spring. Can you no longer drink from that spring? No, you can. You can, but because it's running water. And note, when it says the word cistern here, there, there are uh, two words very closely related. There's, there's bor, and I think the other word is like bor, borchat or something like that. Not borat. That'd be bad. It, it's, it, but the, the one word, the word that's used here is bor, and it literally means a well. So we're talking about groundwater. We're talking about flowing water. We're talking fresh water, not a standing like rain barrel or not a standing cistern. The word for cistern is used in, in other places. I think along with brethren, it's brethren and cistern, right? Just seeing if you're keeping up with me. Why is it okay? Why does this not be a spring or a well collecting water is clean? Why? Because it's running water. It's living water. Psalm 36, verse nine, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. John 4, 14, Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him, I love this, a well of water. A well of water springing up to eternal life. A well that is forever flowing, never stops, which is why he equates it to eternal life. So sometimes unclean things come into our lives. Sometimes unclean things will come into the fellowship or the assembly of the saints. Sometimes unclean things will be discovered in the home. You get rid of it. You get washed by the water of the word. And then, you know what happens? You go back and move in the spirit of God. With the spirit of God, the living water never becomes unclean. You cannot make the Holy Spirit unclean. Perfect. Spirit of God. Verse 37, if a part of their carcass falls on any seed for sowing, which is to be sown, it is clean. So a dead animal can fall into your seed sack and that's okay because the seed is protected by the husk and the seed's gonna go into the ground and ultimately that husk is gonna die away anyway and then the seed will grow up and by then any possible disease, that's gonna be taken care of, not a problem. Though, verse 38, if water is put on the seed and a part of their carcass falls on it, it is unclean to you. Why? Because now the uncleanness can soak in. Which is why the idea of unclean water is a spiritual warning to us. Don't, don't soak in the world. Don't soak in the water that is diseased. Man, if you're gonna soak, soak in the spirit. Don't quench the spirit. Soak in the spirit of God. Don't soak in the things of the world because that stuff is gonna eventually start to seep in and will make unclean. Verse 39 also, if one of the animals dies, which you have for food, the one who touches its carcass becomes unclean until evening. Okay, so even a clean animal, if it's dead, you know, roadkill is right out. You run into a cow, I'm sorry, that's a lot of meat there, but you don't eat that because now it's dead, it's unclean. Death is unclean. He too who eats some of its carcass 
shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And the one who picks up its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. Even the carcass of the clean animal becomes unclean because, again, death makes unclean. Death makes unclean. Ephesians chapter two, verse one. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Paul says, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Man, in the world we were living like the world. And, and, and in the water we were down in the mud. And in the, in the air, we were walking along with the prince of the power of the air. Whatever sphere we were in was dead. It was unclean because of sin. He says then, verse four, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Remember that, I'm gonna come back to that in just a few minutes here. That not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would do what? Anybody know? Walk in them. Note that Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. He's talking about your second creation. He's not talking about when you were created, when you were born into this world. He's talking about when you were born again. If you're born again into Christ Jesus, you are born again to be God's workmanship. We are born to become God's poetry. That's that, that Greek word for workmanship, poema. We are his poems if we've been born again. And as we receive Christ Jesus, remember Paul said, so walk in him. That's the whole idea. That the whole chapter, chapter 11, is all about how we walk and what we ingest, and, and we're called to, as Israel was called to, so we are called to do it in a way that is different than the world. You don't walk united with the world. You don't eat the things of the world. We don't drink of the things of the world. We separate from the unclean. Well, then people are gonna call you goody two-shoes. Great. Maybe better yet, call me goody divided hoof. Yes, I should look different. And if that makes you uncomfortable, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be self-righteous and, and, and know that that's, that's out too. We're not talking self-righteousness. We're talking about God's righteousness and being people who actually want to do what he asked us to do, who actually want to be clean. Is there a holy distinction among God's people in the world today? Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The only way there's gonna be faith among us is if there is holiness in our faith. Verse 41, now every swarming thing that swarms on the earth is detestable, not to be eaten. Whatever crawls on its belly, whatever walks on all fours, whatever has many feet, 
<laughs> in respect to every swarming thing that swarms on the earth, you shall not eat them, for they are detestable. There's something of the serpent, I think, in verse 42. You can look at that and maybe draw that out, but if it's something on the belly, on the belly he went, right, in the garden. Don't have anything to do with that. Do not render yourselves detestable through any of the swarming things that swarm, and you shall not make yourselves unclean with them so that you will become unclean. For I am the Lord your God. Here's the basis of holiness. Here's where it comes from. Here's why we are called to be holy. I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh Elohim. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. Why, Lord? For I am holy. Be holy, for I am holy. You shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth, for I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. That's why I rescued you. That's why I delivered you. It wasn't just so I could get you out of Egypt. It's so I could be your God, away from the gods of the Egyptians. Thus you shall be holy, he says, for I am holy. This is the law regarding the animal and the bird and every living thing that moves in the waters and everything that swarms on the earth. Note this, to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the edible creature and the creature which is not to be eaten. So here we see holiness is the basis of all this law. That's the point. Not just health and hygiene, it's Holiness, it's making that clear distinction. It's living for, moving in, feeding on God's goodness, God's holiness in the world, as opposed to living for, moving in, feeding on the things of the world itself. It's what Jesus prayed on the night of his betrayal. Jake and I were talking about this earlier. How, how remarkable was Jesus' frame of mind on the night of his betrayal? His focus, his grace was remarkable on the night of his betrayal. And it was that night he prayed John 17. You ought to go over that. You wanna, you wanna have a little homework assignment, something to chew the cud with this week? Chew the cud on John 17. The prayer of Jesus, because half that prayer is specifically for you and me. And in that, he prays John 17, 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but to keep them from the evil one. In other words, keep them in the world, but make them holy. Why? Because God is holy. So there are teeming swarms of unclean things in this world. There are piggish things, foul things. There are creepy things, and there are things that'll bite you. And these are all unclean. And Jesus, Jesus made it perfectly simple. Here we can sum up the entire chapter 11, Matthew 5, 48. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, <laughs> okay, how do we do that? You don't. How can we do that? You can't. Why did Jesus say it? I'll let you chew on that until Sunday. Let's go on to chapter 12. One more picture of purification tonight Leviticus 12, it's only eight verses long. Watch this. We'll read the first seven verses right through. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying, when a woman gives birth and bears a male, then she shall be unclean for seven days. 
as in the days of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. I will point out, note the numbers as I mention them. I'm not gonna talk about them tonight, but they're fascinating when you think of what they mean biblically. And, and it's worth pondering a bit. There's something else, some more cud that you can chew. There's plenty of cud for chewing here, okay? But for seven days, when a woman gives birth to a little boy, she's unclean. As in the days of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. So, you know, that, that week-long time, in my household, we call it the monthly visitor. Um, I don't experience it, but I have been around plenty of um, the females in my household, and so I, I try to stay away. Verse three, <laughs> on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So we just shifted from mom, who's unclean for seven days, to baby boy, who is to be circumcised, and here's the law of circumcision right there. So we're tracking all the way back to Abraham. God is now reestablishing, this is part of the Mosaic covenant, part of the Abrahamic covenant, but now it's also part of the Mosaic covenant, that the little male, the little baby boy, is circumcised on the eighth day. And then she, back to mom, shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 days. 33, 33 days. Again, as my brother Jake pointed out earlier today to me, it's about the time that Jesus was on the earth, wasn't it? Wonder what that means. I'm not gonna talk about it. You think it through. Figure it out. Chew on it. She shall not touch any consecrated thing nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. So what does that mean? Seven days. On the eighth day, the little baby boy is circumcised and then another 33 days. So for a total of 40 days. And 40 is a significant number in the Bible as well. Tends to do with trial and judgment, but 40 days now, so she has to uh, not touch. These are the days of her purification. But, verse five, if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks, 14 days, as in her menstruation, and she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 66 days for a total of 80. Twice the length of time if she has a daughter than if she has a boy. Verse six, when the days of her purification are completed for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, whether a male or a female. So the law is the same for both. Gotta bring the sin offering, gotta bring the burnt offering, no matter if you have a boy or a girl, it's just with the boy, it's after 40 days, and with the girl, it's after 80 days. And now that we understand all that, we'll just conclude for tonight. No, I'm kidding. This is fascinating. Interesting, this, this rather brief purification rite, eight verses in total, for childbirth, and it has, it has raised so many questions across the centuries. B.C. and A.D., Jewish scholars and rabbis for, you know, 1,500 years. What does this mean? And I explain, you know, with the, the male child and the female child, and what's he really saying? I'm trying to find understanding for this. And then, and then after Christ in the church, for the last 2,000 years, this has been debated and questioned and, and misunderstood. Four questions. Real quickly, is childbirth a gift or a curse? Because it looks like this, she gets pregnant, she has a child, she better bring her sin offering because she is impure, baby. There's gotta be some cleansing here. So is 
childbirth a, a curse? And, and what is meant by the blood of her purification? And why this lengthy time period? I mean, as we're gonna see in the next set of chapters, the leper is considered clean on the eighth day. All it takes for a leper is a week. Mom's gotta be down for 40 or 80. And why is it 40 days for a baby boy, but 80 days for a baby girl? Clearly, as I shared with our staff this morning, women are more sinful than men. <laughs> and I wouldn't even say that if you knew I wasn't gonna go on and explain something in a minute here. And Finally, why does the birth of a daughter require twice that time of cleansing that the birth of a son does? So let's try and understand this. On the question of childbirth, that's easy. The Bible's absolutely clear. Genesis 1:28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God gave us childbirth as a blessing told us to be fruitful. If it was sin, he would not have told us to do it. Psalm 127, verse three, behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Psalm 128, verses three and four, your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. This is blessing. So clearly the issue is not that bearing a child is sinful. The birth of a child, male or female, is a blessing from the Lord but there is an inherent issue here. Please hear me on this. The birth of every sweet, precious, darling little baby also introduces a new little sinner into the world. A new little being capable of the same sin that we have been and are capable of in this world. So mama didn't sin in giving birth but the newborn she gives birth to is a sinner, is born a sinner. Romans chapter three, verse 10, as it is written, and Paul now quotes Psalm 14 and Isaiah 53, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. But when does that sin start? right from the womb. When is the sin nature present in a human being? Right out of the womb. Psalm 51, verse five, David nails it. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. I'm not saying his parents sinned in having him, but he was brought into a sinful world as a sinner himself. He said, and in sin my mother conceived me. Why? Because she had sin in herself, because dad had sin in himself, because we live in a sinful world, and because I, David, might say, was born with the same sin nature that I just used with Bathsheba. Isaiah 43, verse 27, God says, your first forefather sinned, Adam, and your spokesmen have transgressed against me. Romans 5, verse nine, Paul says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men 
because all sinned. Romans 5, 14, he says, death reigned from Adam until Moses and even those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. You don't have to eat the fruit like Adam did. You don't have to be enticed by your wife to eat the fruit. She's deceived, Adam just blatantly sinned. You're still gonna be a sinner in your own right. And where there is a capacity for sin, there must be a sin offering which explains why the woman has to bring a sin offering after the birth of a child, male or female. There must be a sin offering for purification either after 40 days or after 80 days. So mama will bring a burnt offering after that prescribed time. She brings the burnt offering, which in a way shows the completion, the the totality of the days of her purification, that those days are now full, and so she offers up the full burnt offering. She also then brings a sin offering to atone for that which is inherent in every single person who is born into the world. Okay, you with me on that? Pretty clear. Why the lengthy time period? And why is it just under six weeks for a boy and just over 11 weeks for a girl? Let me encourage you not to read sexism into the text as so many have done those who say God is patriarchal and is sexist. There's only one way you can see God as sexist, and that is if you make him in your own image. That's the problem that the world has looking at the quote-unquote Old Testament God, not that there's any difference between older or newer Testament, same God. But those who say, ah, the Old Testament God is patriarchal and he's vicious and he's he's a sexist, you are. That's the problem. People, they look at God. This is paganism at its heart. Paganism and idolatry says we're gonna make a God after our design. We're gonna make a God in our image. And because we are sexually immoral, we're gonna assume God is. That's why all the Greek gods are sexually immoral. Because the Greeks fashioned them out of themselves. Well, our God is not like us. His thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. He's completely other. He's holy. God is holy. And he's perfect. And we already know something of his character as he described his goodness before Moses, right? So you can't make that assumption. God has no reason to be sexist because he created man and woman both. He's the creator. So he's above all that. So what about this time period? Why is it shorter for boys than for girls? First of all, understand this, that the time period itself, whether 40 or 80 days, It allows for what we read in verse seven, it allows for the woman to be cleansed from the flow of her blood. Let me just speak in basic biology. I think you all can handle this, that after a woman gives birth, she continues to bleed. That is part of the whole process. It's a very natural thing. God created the feminine body, the female body, to be able to give birth, and all the blood that is required to nurture and nourish that that child in the womb, that life that is going to be born, which by the way, the Bible I think is pretty clear that it's life from conception, and that is born then and and fed by the blood in the womb, separate, by the way, blood from mamas. But once the child is born, all that blood's gotta get out of there for the health of the mom. And so God created the feminine body to do that, to discharge all that is no longer needed and all of that that could, if it was left inside the woman, become diseased. Think about that. God said in Leviticus 17, 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood 
I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. But back to the biological process. At first, in the bleeding, when, when a child is born, the, the bleeding, the blood is bright red, as if you cut your finger. Bright red blood, that's, that's normal. But over time, over a week or two or three, the blood gets darker and darker. Why? Because it's dead blood. It's not living anymore. It's not nourishing anything or anyone, any child. It is not healthy. It is not, it's just dead blood, and it has, to, it has to get out. And remember, death is the ultimate unclean. So God says when the woman has the little baby boy or little baby girl, there's a time of the purification, what literally, again, cleansed from the flow of her blood. I want her to stay home, care for that little baby and allow time for all of that blood to flow out. That blood is unclean because that blood is dead. Therefore, she cannot be in connection with the sacred things and the holy things. She can't go to church. Why? Because the blood is unclean. And remember, through all this, God is painting a picture of his absolute holiness. So he says, Mama, stay home. Stay home until you are cleansed from the flow of your blood, until that's all done. You might say, okay, but it still shouldn't be biologically any longer for a girl than for a boy, right? That doesn't make any sense. Why 80 days for the girl? Well, the Lord owes us no explanation, but we can make a guess. And I'm gonna guess this, and this is just Rick's opinion. When a mother gives birth to a boy, a little sinner enters the world, right? When a mother gives birth to a girl, not only does a little sinner enter the world, but one who is capable herself of one day bringing more little sinners into the world. So that may be part of the reasoning that the woman, that the female child by nature will grow up and will be able to then bear more children herself, and those children are gonna be sinners too. So that, that may be an answer. I'm not saying it is, think, perhaps. But again, childbirth itself is not the issue. It is the sin within. Romans 7.20, Paul says, if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it. It's sin which dwells in me. And Paul said, Romans 7.24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. On the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. He's talking about that civil war within. And he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. The unclean have been made clean. And that's what Jesus does. God is still calling his people to holiness. He's, he's creating that understanding that, you know, dead blood, this is an unholy thing. You've gotta make this distinction. You've gotta understand you're dealing here with a holy God, but I want you to be holy, for I am holy. There are two other sweet little suggestions that I'll throw out to you for the longer time period for the baby girl and maybe a different way to look at it than people tend to. First off, girls tend to be smaller at birth, just Typically, not always, but they tend to be smaller at birth. And so an extra 40 days is allowed for sweet nurture of that little girl to take extra special care and focus on her longer than for the boy. And 
since sons were in the ancient days, in the culture, sons were more prized in the ancient world, especially the pagan world. The extra time that God allowed for a little baby girl, what would that do in a family? It would allow another 40 days for family bonding and affection and just staying home and caring for that sweet little daughter. So it's maybe not such a bad thing that mama stayed home longer with a daughter than with a son. Maybe it was because God actually cares so deeply for his little girls. But let's end with verse eight. It says, if she cannot, if mom cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering, the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. I love that. God makes provision for everyone, for the wealthiest among the sons and daughters of Israel to the poorest, he makes provision. And by the way, this verse was played out in Luke chapter two, verses 22 through 24, when one of the poor families of Israel brought the sin offering and the burnt offering in the form of the pigeons or the turtle doves. We're talking about Joseph and Mary. Mary at the birth of Jesus. Think about this, we'll end here tonight. Jesus was born into a poor family. A family that could, could not afford the prescription of, for the sin offering and the, and the burnt offering. The lamb for the burnt offering. They couldn't afford a lamb, Joseph and Mary. So what did they have to bring? Two turtle doves. They bring that and offer that. And Jesus remained poor, even a homeless man his entire life. He didn't walk like this world. He was divided from this world. Jesus, in all these pictures of holiness we've looked at tonight, Jesus portrayed the perfect, holy human. Even in his poverty, 2 Corinthians 8, verse nine, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor, literally, physically, and spiritually, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. But if you're, processing this, if you're chewing this cud right now, why would a sin offering be required for the birth of Christ? The perfect baby, the perfect little boy, the perfect teenager. Yes, there was one. The perfect young man, the perfect adult. Why would a sin offering be required at his birth when he was born and lived a perfect life? Listen, born into a world of sin, this one man took the entirety of sin on himself at the cross. He who knew no sin became sin. And so we see the righteousness of God even in the birth of Christ the sacrifice of the sin offering was required because Jesus himself would become sin, our sin offering on the cross. And that's how far God was willing to go to make us holy. And Father, I pray that you give us now opportunity to think about these things and to with humble heart recognize what a holy God you are, how pure and perfect and true and then with that same humbleness of heart, Lord, with the deepest of thanksgiving, we say thank you for dying that we might be made holy so that we could be with you. 
It's stunning. It's absolutely stunning, Father. And so we recognize you are holy. Help us to walk and to eat and to move as holy people in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.